It's really fun uh, to be with you uh, as a person from Bend, and uh, I'm learning to love this city like no doubt you are, and, uh, and it's been fun to integrate into the life of Antioch, it's, especially in the midst of this series. I don't know, the minor prophets, uh, it's a hard-driving, uh, uncomfortable uh, type of teaching series, and you know, we're like, we're moving through stuff that that we don't like to be like exposed in us. You know, it's like the minor prophets, they, they highlight the parts of us that don't look like Jesus and they force us to have to deal with it, you know? And so this teaching series hasn't necessarily been a feel good, you know, come and be emotionally up and then go home and have brunch type of teaching series. Uh, but sometimes that's really good for us. You know, I think the spirit of Jesus roams untamed when we allow this kind of stuff to sink down deep. And so... Um, I'm excited to dive into it. We're going to be in the book of Malachi. So if you've got your Bibles or your devices, go to Malachi. Best way to find it in your Bibles is go to Matthew because you're probably more familiar and then go to the left two pages and you'll be in Malachi. Um, I, I want to I set the kind of the big scene for what's going on here, um, but I'm going to do it in like a meta-narrative, like big old story kind of way. Um, first and foremost, the minor prophets, if you remember, this is, uh, these are the words of God uh, to a wandering people. These are the words of a good and faithful God to a wandering people. And so as we move through the, the minor prophets, it's the image that I have as I've been reading through is like a, like when you have a prism or a diamond and when it turns in your window or when you turn it in the sunlight, every time you turn it, a unique facet of that diamond springs to life. That's kind of what's going on in the minor prophets. You have, uh, you have Nahum writing and Amos writing and Obadiah writing and Habakkuk writing and Haggai writing, all of these people writing and they're writing in a particular way to expose a unique facet of God's character. And so to just remind us of where we've been over the last six weeks, Nahum exposes a God who is infinitely patient and deeply concerned. We see a God whose vengeance is fierce, but it's controlled. And then we go to Amos, and in Amos, my particular favorite, we discover a God who is radically pro-human, a God who does not play favorites, a God who is not biased, a God who loves people. And then we go into Jeremiah where uh, that prophet exposes just how faithful our God is and how our infidelity, our in unfaithfulness actually creates pain for God. We went into Obadiah and discovered that God is faithful to keep us humble. And then Habakkuk, we, where God hears our cries and is committed to our formation. And then last week in the book of Hosea, we discovered a God who tirelessly pursues an unfaithful people, a diamond Turning in the sunlight, a different facet of God's character revealed every single time. And this morning we're going to be in Malachi. Now Malachi is the last book of the Hebrew scriptures. It's a word given to a people who has recently been freed from the chains of Babylonian exile. And it's the last thing that God is going to say for 400 years. After he says this, he goes dark and the next time he speaks up, he's going to speak up to a priest named Zechariah. And he's going to say to that particular priest, I'm going to give you a son. And I want you to name him John. And your son is going to be a messenger. He's going to make the, straight, the, the path straight for me because I'm coming. 
And so if this is the last book of the Hebrew scriptures, if it's the last thing that God says, I want to ask two questions and kind of explore them this morning. The first one is, how in the world did we get here? How did we get to a people who's recently been released from the chains of exile? And when God spoke this last word, kind of, what did it sound like? And so to the first question, how did we get here? Um, I'm going to take us all the way back to the beginning, uh, to Eden. And in the very beginning, what we find in the scriptures is that God was okay. That God was fine. That God didn't need anything. That God didn't create because he was lacking anything. God created because he wanted to, because it pleased him. And so God began to author an epic narrative. And that story was about God. It wasn't about creation. And God began to speak existence into being and, and creation crescendoed all the way to the pinnacle of his work and that was humanity. God did something unique with humanity. When God breathed it to life, he marked it with his fingerprint. We're made in the image of God. And then there's this beautiful picture in Genesis chapter two where God literally gets down on God's hands and knees if God has hands and knees and exhales into humanity. It's that exhale that actually brings humanity to life. Now, I want us to think about that moment for a second because I think it's important. When humanity woke up for the first time, they woke up into a story that was already in process. They woke up into a story that was not about them. It was about the one who just exhaled into them. And secondly, when humanity woke up for the first time, they woke up face to face with the creator. And in that moment, they would have recognized that everything that we are, everything that we will become, everything that we will ever need is going to come from the hand of the one who just exhaled into us and made us come alive. And as the story continues... The community of God and the community of humanity, they danced to the rhythm of God's heartbeat for a very short time, and it was beautiful. But God as main character no longer worked for humanity. They wanted to live a story where they found themselves as the main character, so they dropped God's plot, they fabricated a fantasy, they convinced themselves that their story was better than the father's and then they pursued it. And when that happened, everything that was beautiful was broken. It came undone. Now here's the irony. They thought that in the story that they were going to live, where they were the main character, that freedom and flourishing would be found in that. The great surprise is when they chased that fantasy they didn't find themselves free and flourishing. They found themselves severed from one another, isolated, hiding, pointing, blaming. And then they started to fabricate stories about a tragic God. And here's the reality. God saw it. And he hated it. It moved him. It hurt him. But it didn't cause God to put the pencil down. He continued the story. He covered their shame and he continued to invite them into a relationship with him. I want to pause the story right there because oftentimes, especially when we're in a series like around the minor prophets, there can be this understanding that the God of the Old Testament or the God of the Hebrew scriptures or God before Jesus was this tyrant of an angry God. 
And what we discover by the end of chapter three of the book is that God is not a tyrant. God is not angry. God is not vengeful. God is good. God is gracious. And so grace wasn't born with Christ. Grace was actually born in the garden when the author didn't put down the pencil, but rather chose to continue the story. From this moment forward, a journey began, and it was a journey east of Eden. And as this journey unfolded, the, the people grew increasingly intolerant of the story being about anyone other than themselves. And they actually calcified in their resolve to draft and chase their own fantasies. And so the worship of creator transitioned to worship of the created. And then the people took these things that they had carved and the the idolatry of the carved became idolatry of the carver. They began to worship themselves. And God saw it. And just like in the garden, God entered into creation. He came down. He came down to rescue because we have a God who has this habit of coming down and finding us in our deepest and darkest pain and brokenness. God came down and he said, where are you? And finally, a guy named Abram said, here I am. And God goes, yeah, there you are. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a huge people. Like your family is going to be massive. And through your family, the entire world is going to be blessed. All the broken things are going to be made right. Everything's going to be mended up because of your family, Abram, if you allow me to be your God. If you listen well and live what you hear. If you remain faithful. That was it. A promise with no roadmap. And then God does this amazing thing. See, God made a big promise there, a bit conditional because there's this if piece going on. God actually established a covenant and then he signed it. Not with paper and, and pen, but in, in, back in the, in the olden days, the way that you would actually make a massive agreement like this, it was called a covenant, is that you would kill three animals. You would dig a trench, you would line up the halves of the animals on each side of the trench and allow the blood to fill the trench. So now you've got this huge trough of blood and the two people making the agreement would commit to walking through the blood. And of course, as you're walking through the blood in a time when you wear long robes, blood begins to saturate the bottoms of your robes and move its way up. That's intentional. That's an everyday reminder. Every time I put on this robe and I look at the blood stains on the very bottom, I remember the stakes of this promise. As these two people would walk through the blood path, they would be saying, if I break my end of the deal, I die. Let the same thing happen to me that happened to these three animals. So God, he makes this promise to Abraham and they're going to sign it. And so, so naturally God says, I want you to dig in the dirt and I want you to kill three animals And I want the blood path to get nice and full. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God actually puts Abraham to sleep and walks the blood path twice. Do you understand what this means? God has just unilaterally signed a blood covenant. 
God has just said to Adam, or excuse me, Abraham, and through Abraham to all of humanity, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, I die. If you don't hold up to your end of the deal, I die. This is not the sound of a tyrant, angry God. This is grace. This is gospel. If I don't give you a land and make you into a great people and bless the entire world world through you, I die. If you can't stay faithful, I die. And then God made, made good on his promise. You see, Abraham, he had some sons who had some sons who had some sons and the people of Israel was born and very quickly Israel found themselves enslaved in the brick kilns of Egypt. While they were there, generation of slavery gave way to generation after generation after generation of slavery. But this story was passed down all throughout the generations of a God who had this habit of coming down, a God who would hear our cries and he would come down. God kept, he keeps coming down. But there was also this story about a God who made a promise to Father Abraham and signed it in blood. And then eventually, one day, the exodus came. As blood dried on the doorposts of their homes, Israel tasted freedom for the first time in 400 years. This journey continued east of Eden into the Arabian wilderness. 430 years of slavery meant that no one knew how to live free. Can you imagine My dad and his dad and their dads and dads and dads and dads for 430 years, all they knew was slavery. Oppression and violence and pain. These were their constant companions. They had no idea how to live free. And God saw it. And so he said, I'm going to have to teach my people to live. And so he began in Deuteronomy 6, 4 with this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. God says the first thing, the central thing, the most important thing that you could ever remember is that I am God, I am it, and I want your first, and I want your best, I want your affection, I want your worship, not just your songs, I want your life. And for the Hebrew people, this became the bedrock understanding of who God was. God continued to reinforce it over and over and over. He said, if you forget that I'm your God, then you'll forget your story. And if you forget your story, you'll forget that you were once slaves. And if you forget that you were once slaves, then you'll begin to oppress other people. And if you begin to oppress other people, you will find yourself again enslaved. But they forgot. They started to trade the worship of God for the worship of the created. And then they exchanged the worship of the created for the worship of self. And things continued to unravel into chaos. God kept speaking up though. He kept coming down. He kept reminding the people that their freedom and their flourishing was directly linked to their worship of God and their love of neighbor, especially the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans. 
Let me personalize that. Our freedom and flourishing are directly linked to our worship of God and our love of neighbor, especially the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. Well, that didn't work. It didn't work for the people. Eventually, they found themselves settling a land and they chose a king and then they built armies to secure the security that God had already promised. And then they began to build these big, huge cities with the blood equity of slaves. They became impressed with themselves and they were consumed with their ability to protect what was their own. They became consumed with accumulation. They started to convince themselves that God was not the giver of all good things, that all good things came to them because they were good. They were smart. They were creative. They were resourceful. And then they began to recognize that they could, they could produce more if they could oppress the weak well and make the weak do the things that they didn't want to do anymore. They convinced themselves that they didn't need God. And that's when the prophets began to send their warnings. That's when these men and women began to rise up. And when they rose up, they said, hey, folks, we've forgotten God. We've chosen infidelity. And unless we change our ways and return to the worship of God and love of neighbor, catastrophe is on its way. Now, the prophets, they brought a word of judgment, but they also brought a word of repentance. They called the people to repent. There was a way to avoid catastrophe, and that was turn away from idolatry and injustice to worship and love. Turn away from idolatry and injustice and toward worship and love. These things do not dovetail together. You can't have them both. It's either or. And the prophets were saying, move in this direction because this is the way of flourishing and freedom, not only for us, but for the entire world. But the people, their abundance and their comfort and their privilege caused them to forget God. And when they forgot God, they forgot their story. And when they forgot their story, they forgot their slavery. And so for the people, this independence led to an idolatry and the idolatry led to injustice and the injustice eventually led to their slavery. They found themselves in chains again, this time in Babylon. Now exile, exile wasn't an eternal banishment from God's perspective. Exile in Babylon, it was, not, it was not God disqualifying the people from relationship with him or from their role in the world. The point of exile was to realign the people's worship away from themselves and toward the one who had exhaled into them. The point of exile was to recommission this people to become the people who live and love and lead in ways that actually contribute to the flourishing of others rather than the all-dimensional benefit of themselves. That was the point of exile. 
And so as they were in exile, uh, the, the prophets began to help them remember their God and their story and their slavery. And they began to remember, oh yeah, once upon a time, we found ourselves in chains in the brick kilns of Egypt. And we started to cry out to God and God heard our cries because God has this habit of coming down and meeting us in our deepest pain. And so they began to cry out to God. And after 70 years of exile, God rescued them and then reestablished them in a place with a vocation, with a role to be worshipers of Yahweh and lovers of people that come in contact with you. Unfortunately, their newfound freedom caused them to return to the practices of idolatry and injustice. And so finally, the word of the Lord came to a prophet named Malachi. That's 38 books of scripture in 12 or 15 minutes. Here we are. A people post-exile. A people who were supposed to have a realigned worship. A people who had just been radically rescued and redeemed again. But a people who chose idolatry and injustice instead. And so here's, here's to my second question. When God gave this word to Malachi, this is the last word for 400 years. So it's like one of those, pay attention. This is it. So what did it sound like? Well, let's look at it. Malachi chapter one, verses one and two. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi, by the way, means messenger. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. I love you. I love you. After all of that, after your current practice of idolatry and injustice, I love you. I can't stop myself from loving you. I can't stop myself from pursuing you. I can't stop myself from making love tangible to you. I can't hold myself back. You are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. I don't know, for some of us, maybe we're sitting in here begrudgingly and for years we've thought, man, that thing that I did or that place that I went or this practice I'm involved in or whatever, it's disqualified me from God's love. Nope. When the word of the Lord came to the messenger, the last word, it began with, I am crazy about you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And then the people responded. And this really starts to expose the theme of Malachi. But you say, how have you loved us? And so what we have in this, this question, like God, throughout the whole book, God will say, God will say, uh, he'll, he'll mention something or he'll say, this is, this is a practice you're involved in. And they'll say, how is that true? It happens like seven times throughout the book. And we'll look at about five of them here in a second. But God says, this is true about you. How? Tell me how. How is that? How is that possible? And so it starts here. I've loved you. And the people are like, how? How? How is that, how is that true? I don't experience that. 
Like my, my real moment right now does not indicate that, that you love me. And it begins to just unpack this. What we're going to see throughout the entire journey is that God is this tirelessly pursuing, outpouring God who is crazy about his people and a people who are callous and cynical and indifferent to God. Because, friends, that's what happens when we choose to worship ourselves over God. When we choose to fabricate a fantasy where we become main character, we become cynical and callous and indifferent toward the one who actually makes us alive. I've loved you. Have you loved us? And then God begins to unpack a couple of charges against the people. And, um, and I, I, as we move through these five, I want, to, I want us to understand that this was a specific word to a specific group of people. But the wonder of the word of God is that when we actually look at it together as followers of Jesus, the spirit of the risen one actually turns it into the words of God for us. And so as we move through this, I'm just going to invite you, when it gets uncomfortable, pay attention to that. Don't resist it. Don't get defensive. When you feel something starting to rise up and you just pay attention to it because my hunch is, is that in a setting like this, when we begin to explore the scriptures together and stuff unsettles us, that's probably the area of breakthrough that God is wanting to, to, to bring about in your life. And so there's going to be some intense stuff that we're going to talk about. And so if it makes you go, oh, I don't like that. Mm, okay. I don't like any of this because it exposes a whole bunch of stuff in me. And so let's let this be a formational journey, not just a, hey, yeah, God said this to this group of people once upon a time. No, he's saying it to us. So let's pay attention to it. Deal? Deal? Yeah, good, good, good. Awesome. Okay. Um, First charge. Uh, If you look at um, 1, 6 through 8, as son, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice. Is that not evil? Here's what God is saying to the people. Okay, first of all, they all have like flocks and there's a sacrifice system. And God just said, I want you to be courageously generous. Not just in a sacrifice system to atone for your sin, but like I want you to give your first and your best to me. Because that does a couple of things. Number one, when you give your first and your best, when you don't wait till the year's end for a tax write-off, when you give your first and your best, you declare right up front who your God is and who your God is not. When you give your first and your best in worship, it places you automatically into a posture of dependence. God, I gave you my first and my best. Are you going to sustain me moving forward? I need you. God, if you don't show up, I'm screwed. You get what I'm saying? Like this is the rhythm of generosity that God actually wrote into our practice as, as, the, as the God people, okay? So like here's what's happening. There's this group of people and they understand that. They know that they're supposed to give their first and their best as an act of worship, not as an obligation, but to actually grow something in them, grow dependence, grow humility, grow worship in them. But that's not what they were doing. Instead, they would raise their flocks and they would set aside all of the best for themselves 
And then they would bring the blind and the crippled and the diseased animals and they would offer those to God. Here's what God is saying. Your worship is as blind and crippled and diseased as the animals you sacrifice. You're bringing me your leftovers. You're not bringing me your best. Isn't that something? Like it's this, like I'm going to use the best and I'm going to accumulate the best and I'm going to store it up and I'm going to use it for my benefit and then I'm going to try to seduce God's affection by offering him my leftovers. God is saying that when you save the best for you and offer me your leftovers, that's idolatry. Why? Because the object of our affection gets our first and our best. The object of our affection gets our first and our best. And so who or what in our lives gets our first and our best? You can't keep the first and the best for yourself and claim that you don't live an idolatrous life. That's what God is saying to the people. And so that kind of like giving me your leftovers, that's not pleasing to me. That's disgusting. I'm not interested in it. It's pretty intense. The second one, go to Malachi uh, chapter 2. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Here's what God is saying. There's this living parable, very similar to what was happening last week in the book of Hosea. There's this living parable happening among the people where the men of Judah were actually walking away from the covenant that they had made with their wife, with the, the bride of their youth, and they're opening their beds to foreign women and foreign gods. God is actually pointing to that and he's saying that is actually, that exposes the reality of your heart. Like you're actually turning your back on the covenant that we have with one another and opening your bed, literally getting in bed, literally intercoursing with, being intimate with foreign gods. It's a rejection of me. But then he goes on in this particular word where, um, where essentially people are doing this and then they're beginning to justify it saying, you know what, God's kind of okay with that. The world's changing. It's not as bad as it used to be. I mean, they're good people, you know? And, and so God is literally saying, you're morally bankrupt. Not only are you faithless to our covenant, but you're beginning to make me sound as though I'm okay with it. I am not okay with it. Isn't it something that when you and I, when we when we begin to live a story where we are the main character, isn't it something how God conveniently starts to endorse our behavior? Like God is suddenly, when, when I'm the main character, God is suddenly okay with what I do. Isn't that something? So God no longer calls into question my behavior. God is suddenly okay with my behavior. It's not that big of a deal to God. God says, that's actually disgusting to me. That's idolatry. I'm not interested in it. Third charge. Uh, look at uh, chapter three, 
Verses six and seven, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God is actually saying to them, you've actually walked away from me. And they're like, uh-uh, like, look, we're, we're here. We're in the land. We're rebuilding the temple. We're doing the, the tithes and offerings thing. Look, we're right here. God's like, no, 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 no. Physically, you're here. But your soul is in a different place. Physically, you're pursuing things that satisfy you. And then on Sunday, you're kind of, you're going to church and you're throwing a couple bucks in the offering and you're singing the songs and you're listening to a, a compelling talk. It's like God is exposing for them, like you, th- there's a difference between the exterior and the interior. Your exterior looks okay, but on the inside, your heart has wandered far, far, far from me. And God is saying, you can't live a life where you're satisfying your own goals, your own selfish desires, and then manage this like religious equation, A plus B plus C. So I can have my cake and eat it too, and then do like I'm in a small group, and I go to church, and I maybe serve a little bit, and all of that makes me okay with God. God's saying, no, 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 I'm not okay with that. That's not what this is all about. I want interior and exterior. I want them to match each other. And by the way, the God life is not about managing an equation to seduce his affection. It's about an everyday way of laying your life down so that others flourish. That's what it's about. I want all of you. I want all of you. So he says, you're, you're walking away. You're, you've departed me. And then he goes on in, in 3, 8 through 10. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, conventionally, this is the passage that pastors like to twist and guilt their churches into giving more money. That's not the kind of church Antioch is. And I dig that. For Antioch, courageous generosity is an issue of discipleship. It's not about obligation. It's a practice that we engage in. It's what we do out of a response for the unbelievable generosity of God toward us. Here's what's going on though. God is saying, you are robbing me. How are we robbing you? Because you're using the resources that I bless you with on yourself. That's it. You accumulate and then you use it on you. And you store it up and you use it on you. All of the resources that I keep funneling in your direction, all you're doing with it is using it on you. Meanwhile, people are starving. People are hurting. 35% of the kids on the east side of Bend live below the poverty line. That can't continue to happen. See, God is saying, when we start to accumulate and hoard, suddenly we become convinced that our resources are because of us and for us. The newsflash, God is saying, is the resources that are funneling to you have very little to do with you. 
I invite you to participate in that, but it has very little to do with you. I can funnel resources anywhere I want to funnel them at any time. But what happens is we get them and then we hoard them and then we begin to convince ourselves that it's because of us and for us. Again, placing ourselves as main character, placing ourselves as God, dare I say. So this is another form of idolatry and God is saying, no, you're robbing me. And God's not saying like, I need your money. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. God is saying, you're robbing me from the opportunity to use you to extend generosity to a world in need. Do you get it? God doesn't need your money. God wants to invite you and I to join him in making right wrong things in the world. So when we accumulate and when we hoard and when we spend it on us, we're actually robbing God the opportunity to co-create with us solutions to make wrong things right in the world. And that messes with God. He hates it. He wants to co-labor. He wants to co-create. He wants to fix a broken world with us. That's why he's funneling resources to us, not so that we can pile them up and convince ourselves that we're really, really incredible. Do you know what I'm saying? Last thing that he says um, in 3.13. Gosh, this is intense. Sorry. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's, it's in vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They're saying, gosh, this whole following God thing, it doesn't even really matter. Like I'm not getting anything out of it. What's in it for me? I feel like I try to be faithful and I don't get anything. There's nothing in return. Turns out this whole relationship with God is not this transactional thing. It's not this thing where I do A, B, and C for God and then he goes, well, here's D, E, and F for you. That's not how it works. God is, I mean, he is longing for all of us. It's not about what we get. It's about who we become. This whole God life, it's not about what we get. It's about who we become and the joy that is found when we actually lay our lives down for the flourishing of others. That's that's Philippians 2. That's God saying, you want joy? You want abundance? You want life? Pour your life out. Give it away. Give it away. That's where you'll find life. That's where you'll find abundance. It's amazing to me. So all of these charges, your, your worship is diseased, uh, you're morally bankrupt, return to me, you're robbing me, you speak against me. To this group of people who are living this kind of way, God shows up and says, I love you. I love you. And then there's this prophetic word in the first few verses of chapter three where God says, I love you this much. I'm about to make good on my promise to Father Abraham. Remember that moment when I walked the blood path and said, if I don't hold up to my end of the deal, I die. And if you don't hold up to your end of the deal, I die. Well, the only way God can die is if God puts on flesh because that's the only way he can bleed. And so God isn't just giving them lip service and saying, I love you. He's saying, and now I'm coming down again. 
That's the heart and soul of this, of this book. It's not you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. It's all of these things are true because of your practices of idolatry and injustice, but I love you and I still can't stop myself from coming down there and bleeding on your behalf. I cannot imagine living without you. I cannot stop it. I am going to come and I'm going to bleed. And when I bleed, it's going to be like the refiner's fire, Malachi says. In other words, when I bleed, all of the impurity and all of the hypocrisy and all of the idolatry and all of the injustice are going to be burnt up. And then he goes on to say, when I come, when I put flesh on, when I am capable of bleeding, it will be like the launder soap. I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to set you right because I'm God and I promised it because I am crazy about you. That's the heart of Malachi's message to his people. I'm coming. And then the people said, well, how are we, know, how are we going to know when you're here? And Malachi says there's going to be a messenger. He doesn't identify him as John, but there's a, there's a messenger that's coming and that messenger is going to make the path straight. And when that messenger, the new Elijah, when that messenger shows up, you will know that I am here. Keep in mind that a few chapters later, that particular messenger was standing in the Jordan and saw this unruly bro walk up and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. God's making good on his promise. What do we do with all this? Are you with me so far? Go to um, 3.16. I think it's amazing that after all of this, then God highlights this little remnant of faithful people. And I think that there are things that Jesus is wanting to do in us out of these five charges that we just got done working through. But I want to learn from the faithful. I want to learn for, for a moment from the ones that, that God says, look at them. Do what they're doing and you will have freedom and you will flourish. Here's what we read in 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So there's this small group of people and they spoke with one another. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. I, I want to just highlight two practices of this faithful remnant. I think there's some things that we can learn together about how to live. First and foremost, they spoke with one another. The faithful remnant spoke with one another. Seems simple, right? I think oftentimes we would say in a contemporary world, we'd be like, well, that's my small group. We talk. Those are my buddies. That's my book study. That's my, my guys that I grab a beer and a game with. You know, we talk. No, 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 that's, this is something different. The kind of talking to that's being alluded to here is this like deep confession. 
encouragement, discernment. These people had the types of relationships where there was no stone unturned in their lives. These are the types of people that when they heard Malachi offer these indictments against a faithless people, they would actually, they would huddle up with with this group of people and say, what if this is true in me? Because I've got a hunch that some of this is alive in me. Why? Because like, I'm not complete yet. So they would hear things like Malachi saying, your worship is polluted. And they'd come to this group and say, is my worship polluted? How is it polluted? What do I need to do to adjust it? Or they'd hear, they'd hear Malachi say, like, you're morally bankrupt. You've turned your back. How have we turned our backs on the covenant? How have we done this? And it's not like, let's justify the fact that we have, but continue to live deceiving ourselves that we haven't. It's like, no, what is true about this in our lives, in our practice, in our worship, in our followership, in our vocation and mission? We have to see what's true about this. They would hear Malachi say, you've turned away from me. Where and how? What's causing us to turn away? They'd hear Malachi say, you're robbing me. How can we be generous? What does it mean to rob? You speak against me. How do we, what are we saying? And what are we, like, they're not stressed out about it. They're just, they're just saying, there's got to be truth here. And I need the power of God to transform me into someone who's faithful, a worshiper, a disciple, a missionary who is living and loving and leading in ways that are causing the flourishing of the world. That's what this group of people was thinking about. So when they talked to each other, they weren't doing their check-in and how's life and, you know, keeping it at a surface. They were actually turning over stones saying, this is what's real about me. You do not have permission to let me stay here. Let me ask us, how many of us have those kinds of relationships? where you can literally say, this is me completely unrobed. This is the good, this is the bad, this is the ugly. I do not allow you to to let me stay bad and ugly. Do you have these relationships? Because that's the faithful remnant in in Malachi. And then there's the second thing that they do. They fear God and thought on his name. Well, what in the world does that mean? It meant that they were in awe of the extravagant compassion and grace and faithfulness of God. How were, like, what, what, what was, like, how, what was that like? Well, no doubt they had experienced the extravagant love and grace and compassion and faithfulness. And so when they got together to talk with one another, they would remind each other of the extravagance of God's grace to them. So there's this story element of what they would do where they just kept on driving each other back to to a God who lavishes extravagantly. And then they would call out for the power of God to help them live and love and lead as faithful and courageous and generous worshipers and disciples and missionaries. So apparently, according to Malachi, Or I wonder if in all of this, Jesus isn't highlighting for us the impossibility of faithfulness when we've chosen ourselves as the main character. I wonder if Jesus isn't saying to us, allow the power of the gospel to continue to transform you. But I wonder if Jesus isn't also saying that needs to happen in the context of community. You were not created to be alone. 
You cannot do this as an independent, isolated individual. You can't even do it as an independent, isolated family. You need the power of the gospel to roam and move untamed in the context of a community where there is no stone unturned, where you demand God to continue to transform us into the image of Jesus. So I want to leave us with two questions. Number one, with whom in your life would you take these five charges of Malachi? If you could sit down with two or three people this afternoon, who would they be and say, let's unpack these in our own life? Who are those people? And you don't age out of this and you're not too young for this. Who are those people? Are you willing to actually derobe your soul and say, what's, the, what's true about me here? So who are those people? Second question, what would change in our experience of worship, discipleship, and mission if we allowed the power of the gospel to do that kind of work with a few others? What would change? So I want to um, pause there. We'll put a semicolon on this conversation. And I just, I trust that the spirit of God roams untamed in a moment like this. And so I'm going to stop filling the, the space with sound. And I'm just going to invite you to in some reflective silence, just ask Jesus, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do? And then we'll respond in music in a little bit. Okay.